0: Salam and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we have Dr. Uzma Jamil interviewing Professor Tariq Modood on his new book, Essays on Secularism and Multiculturalism. Hello everybody, we're here today with Professor Tariq Modood who is a professor of sociology, politics, and public policy, and also director of the Research Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Citizenship at the University of Bristol uh, in the School of Sociology, Politics, and International Studies. Um, He is here today to talk about his new book, Essays on Secularism and Multiculturalism, which was just published last year. So thank you, Professor Madood, uh, for being here with us. Um, I guess let's just begin with talking about the book briefly tell us uh, what it's about what your thinking is
1: yeah um, so I suppose first thing to to say to people who don't know my work is that um, it combines um, sociology and political theory and I kind of um, coined a term to describe this combination normative sociology um, so. That runs through, really, uh, my work as a whole and certainly in this book. Um, it begins with um, cultural racism against Muslims, or what we've come to call Islamophobia. It discusses that in relation to some Muslim controversies, uh, primarily in Britain and Western Europe. And it then, you know, a good half of or, or more of the book is devoted to why secularism is uh, an important, as it were, frontier of multiculturalism and what I understand by political secularism and in what ways it can uh, be multiculturalized. To go back to the beginning, the issue about Islamophobia, so I think uh, most uh, listeners of this podcast will be aware that uh, Islamophobia became a kind of a term beyond a, uh, a small circle of people through a report by the Runnymede Trust in 1997 in London. Um, and I was already working on um, anti-Muslim racism, as I called it, but I I did uh, uh, use the term Islamophobia as well, but I was just a little reluctant to to use it because other people were using it in different ways. And this is exactly how it turned out with the Runnymede Trust. They put um, emphasis on Islam at the centre of Islamophobia, um, sort of hostility to, to Islam, and then to Muslims as a kind of consequence of that. And I thought that was actually exactly the wrong way around. Um, Because I was more focused on racism and racialization of people, my way of uh, framing it was that uh, the hostility to Islam was because it was the religion of Muslims, rather than someone had worked out what Islam stood for, came to be uh, against it, and then was against its followers. I think there are a few people in the United States that might think like that, but that's certainly not how it is in Britain and in continental Europe. Um, and so I you know, I think, as one of the pioneers of that approach, uh, seeing Islamophobia as a form of racialization. And that's actually now become the Runnymede Trust's uh, position itself. They published a, uh, a 20th anniversary um, second report, and that's exactly the approach they've t- taken. And I think that now is really uh, the approach that's now become quite dominant, um, certainly in Britain, but not only in Britain. And w- we've got, you know, MPs and parliamentary groups and so on supporting that as well. Um, so I have something to, s- to say about that, um, exactly how it's developed, and I, one of the things I do is to uh, draw parallels with anti-Semitism, the way that anti-Semitism uh, is a racialization of a religious community, regardless of their religious texts and practices and so on. They get sucked in because of the racialization rather than an independent evaluation of the text or some kind of theological position. Um, But then I also have, um, if you like, some criticisms to make about certain tendencies in what we might call Islamophobia studies, because I'm very mindful of how um, in the 1980s anti-racism in Britain went in a particular direction, and I don't just mean here activism, I mean um, the study of it as well, especially in British sociology. where it ended up defining um, the the racialized groups, you know, black people, people not white, it ended up defining them in the terms of the racialization and gave them just enough agency to be, as it were, resistors of racialization, but nothing else. So, basically, they were defined in terms of racism and anti-racism. And I think that uh, some Islamophobia studies have been doing exactly the same thing, that it's defining Muslims in terms of Islamophobia, and, of course, most scholars and certainly most Muslim theorists and activists want to develop you know, anti-Islamophobia, as indeed I do. Um, and so they then bring in Muslim agency only in the context of anti-Islamophobia. But of course, Muslims are like everybody else. They are people with their own um, sense of identity, their own you know, families and histories and uh, political positions and so on. And they sometimes work together, they sometimes don't work together and so on. And I think all that has to be part of what one might call Muslim studies and so I'd rather have Islamophobia studies folded into the study of Muslims rather than as a standalone um, uh, disciplinary project, research project in its own right because then you're really not talking about Muslims, you're talking about how others think of Muslims how others, including institutions uh, including governments foreign policies and so on, treat Muslims and I don't think that's that's uh, a satisfactory way to uh, understand interest, uh, understand Muslims or promote their interests and well-being. So I've got a few critical remarks to say about um, that tendency which I think in a way, I've mentioned British anti-racism but also which comes from Orientalism, which after all has got very little to say about Muslims, it's all about the perception of Muslims, the perception of Muslims by a powerful West and um, the domination of Muslims. I see uh, the philosophical perspective that uh, runs through my work very explicitly so as multiculturalism. And multiculturalism I see as always going beyond the negative, domination, exclusion, racism and so on. That there is some kind of positive political uh, vision, but more than just a a loose vision, some kind of positive politics involved. It is an ideational politics, i.e. it involves ideas, but nevertheless it has got something positive to say about how society should be. And this is something that anti-racists and orientalists don't do and they tend to take it for granted. Or, you know, because they obviously are very positive about politics, but they don't spell out what the positive is, and therefore there's no space for discussion of it. And my book's all about trying to discuss what the positive can be rather than just identify forms of exclusion, forms of mistreatment, um, the ways that certain. European countries for instance are um, stigmatizing Muslims um, through security discourses or discourses about fanaticism and jihadis or to do with for instance uh, dress especially uh, female dress and so on so um, that's what really then gets me to secularism because quite a lot of um, Muslim studies at the moment is focused on radicalization and anti radicalization securitization um, state apparatus foreign policy and so on governmentality whereas I've decided that the big issue for me any, anyway i'm not saying it has to be for everybody or that it's the only big issue but the big issue that I can contribute to is how are we to understand uh, secularism by which I mean political secularism not issues around The afterlife or theism or anything like that, political secularism, in relation to the uh, ideals and goals of multicultural equality. And so I build up a concept of um, political secularism, not by turning straight away to political theory, which is full of kind of liberal, idealized interpretations, which actually Often are empirically quite false; i.e., they don't exist in the world. But theorists talk as if they were actually talking about real-world countries like, you know, Britain and France and the United States and Canada. But often they're just talking about their own uh, abstract concepts. So I develop a more ground-based, more empirically uh, grounded concept of political secularism. Britain is probably the country that, are, like. But the rest of my work has most um, influenced me in forming my concepts. You know, it's the experience, not just the personal experience, but the, the societal and political experience I draw upon to develop my concepts. But I do argue that they have applicabilities, at least uh, political secularism concept, which I call moderate secularism, has applicability to Northwest Europe in general, with the partial exception of France. So I mean countries like Netherlands, Belgium, Nordic countries, Germany. Um, And one of the things uh, I argue is that liberals have misunderstood these countries and therefore the idea that uh, secularism is about Freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, toleration, and otherwise state neutrality in relation to religion is a complete misdescription of politically secular countries, like the ones I've just named, and actually all these countries support, uh, you know, the state, uh, its institutions, its uh, fiscal power, you know, taxpayers' money. They all support religion in some form or another, not in always in the same ways. They can have quite different institutions and state traditions, um, and they don't select all religion uh, support all religions. So it's a very selective support, but nevertheless, it's not a separation of religion and the state or politics, um, and. I argue that the central issue uh, in defining this political secularism is an understanding of the public good and the public harm that religion can enable or cause. And that's why the state doesn't have a hands-off approach to religion because it sees it, And, and this is of course the Western European experience if we go back a couple of centuries, it sees it as a uh, a good that can be utilized but also as a very dangerous divisive force if not properly constrained Um, and i argue that this has evolved into some relatively um, supportive uh, uh, institutions and policies supportive of religion um, like, for instance, you know, the funding of religious schools, um, which exist in virtually all European Union countries, either schools as such, or certainly the funding of religious teaching in state schools. Even in, uh, even in France, they support uh, Catholic, Catholic schools. I argue that this actually is a platform for multiculturalisation, and we should resist those interpretations of political secularism that says that we should, as it were disestablish these institutions, disestablish the Church of England or you know Norway's relationship to the Lutheran Church or the sense in Denmark that the Lutheran Church is part of a, a national uh, story, a national identity. I say no, let's reform those ie multiculturalize those rather than um, have a a program of abolition a program of marginalization because actually that program of marginalization will rob religious minorities like muslims of the opportunity to have their identities recognized in the public space and have uh, roles uh, public roles public opportunities both to promote their own uh, agenda but also to form alliances with other like-minded groups of course that includes interfaith alliances but not only I would w- want uh, humanists and you know people without any religions on also to be included in these kinds of alliances as they as they often are but if we were to Uh, think of uh, secularism as a kind of absence of religion in the public space those alliances would then look problematic people would say well we don't want to know about your religious views or your religious identity or whatever just you know sign up to the party program or sign up to whatever the immediate cause is and that would be a narrowing of the possibilities of uh, living in accordance with one's faith, uh, and certainly I think a lot of Muslims would feel uh, discomforted by that, and it's more likely to lead to an alienation in this um, Western European context, and I expect also in Canada and so on, um, than if we were to say, no, we're not about abolishing uh, Christian institutions and privileges, we're about extending them in a multicultural way to include minority faiths. So if we have religious holidays that are only Christian at the moment, well, they don't have to stay like that, we can include things like Eid and Hanukkah and Diwali uh, as national holidays, as days in which universities don't um, have exams, um, and That's a more inclusive and multicultural way of having um, a relationship with organized religion than the uh, secularist imaginary of separation and state neutrality. Um, And that occupies quite a lot part of the book. I obviously engage with other scholars who... um, well, I think in quite, it's quite interesting. When I first started this, the, the the liberal position was so much more strongly separationist, whereas now I think there is a group of scholars who see themselves as either liberals or partly liberals or a variant of of, of liberal, um, and who now occupying a position that's a lot closer to me, um, and why do you
0: think that is?
1: Well, I'd like to think it's the force of argument, but I think, you know, the world itself has shifted in ways that people see possibilities that they didn't see before. You know, mind opens up in the context of circumstances, so this is a kind of, uh, you could say, um, a kind of Hegelian or Marxist view about uh, the mind being shaped by social being, I think, as our as new issues arise, um, things that previously we thought were impossible suddenly become possible. Um, I think there's also has been a reaction the other way. I, I can't pretend it's all been in one direction. I think that um, we, we're seeing a hardening of uh, a certain kind of secularism, and it's mainly a reaction to, as it were, too much um, Islam and too much Muslim noises and uh, Muslim uh, assertiveness in the public space, and and of course that's, that's to be found in every country, but I think in many ways France has set itself, intendedly or unintendedly, as the model for what you might call the prohibitionist approach. As opposed to the accommodationist approach.
0: How would you um, <coughs> situate the rise of far-right politics in, uh, in relation to all of this?
1: <coughs> well some far-right um, is very strongly secularist so I think you get this especially I think in, in uh, very right-wing stuff in the Netherlands um, like Pim Fortune and um, the leader of the Freedom Party is escapes me for the moment. Um, but interestingly, um, Christianity, a kind of historical civilizational Christianity, has now become a trope amongst the far right who are not particularly religious. Um, and, and I think actually quite a lot of uh, more sincere religious Christians are very disturbed by that this instrumentalization of their faith and taking it in a direction that is uh, riding rough-trod over Christian values and ideas about uh, hospitality and brotherly, uh, brotherly neighborliness and so on, um, and creating um, a divisive politics. So I don't think uh, many uh, true Christians active Christians are sympathetic to that and, and we see that often uh, in, in the United States where Trump says he's standing for a certain kind of uh, Christian America and so on. And of course a lot of Christians do support him, but they're more likely to be cultural Christians and more uh, liberal, active Christians are absolutely appalled by by his references to being a champion of Christianity.
0: Right, well, I think that's all the time we have today, so thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, I guess I wish you well with um, your continuing book tour.
1: Thank you, Isma. <laughs>
0: This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.